Welcome to The Shrinks on Third, our psychology and social justice podcast. I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. And I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. Thanks for joining us. Since we've been recording and releasing podcasts for almost four years now, we thought, given the current political climate, that it would be valuable to re-release a popular episode we recorded clearly before the pandemic. That's right, Cindy. Back in the before days, we would have a monthly in-person feminist brunch for a wonderful bunch of women to discuss a particular topic important to feminists, but really important to everyone. I miss those days. Me too. They were so much fun and empowering. And the food and drink was really good too. Agreed. So this episode on abortion practices and rights in Pennsylvania continues to be relevant, maybe even more now than when we recorded it, unfortunately. It is really, unfortunately. So listeners, get yourself a Bloody Mary and a croissant, sit back and join our brunch group. Listen to what Taylor Austin, our wonderful guest at the time, enlightened us about with regard to abortion practices several years ago. We wish this episode had become obsolete by now. Instead, it's urgently important. It is. Join us. The Shrinks on Third are sitting here today with our feminist brunch group. Yeah, here we are. Welcome, <laughs> Welcome ladies. And we're interviewing Do we Taylor want to say Austin. Who we are? Yes. Oh, okay. Holly's eating. Okay, let me see how far this is going to go. Well, you can come around. Okay. What's your name? Kara. Hunter. Hi, I'm Rhoda. Deb. Hi, I'm Allison. Oh, Julie. We'll we'll come back to me. Okay. (laughs) Can't you say your name with your mouth full? Holly. Okay. See, we're having brunch. brunch. We have this amazing brunch with waffles yeah. and bagels and quiche and fruit. And we could probably feed 20 people, but we, we don't, don't have, have a lot of rooms. Many. Okay. We invited Taylor from the Women's Centers, and she's going to first, I guess, talk a little bit about sure. what you do at the Women's Center and what the Women's Centers do. And- sure. So, the Women's Centers is a group of independent abortion providers. We have five clinics across four states. I represent the Delaware County Women's Center's office, which is located in Chester, Pennsylvania, on the campus of Keystone Crozier Hospital, and also Philadelphia Women's Centers, which is on 8th and Arch, right outside of Chinatown in Philadelphia. We are, as I mentioned before, we're independent abortion providers, but we affectionately call ourselves Indies. Indies collectively provide the majority of abortion care in the United States, serving three out of every five people who has an abortion. Taylor, what do you do? So I do (laughs) community engagement for our Pennsylvania clinics. My job is to do civic engagement, public education, organize initiatives related to those things, and also legislation to promote cultural change and social change around abortion, abortion providers, and our patients. I have to say, Taylor, that sounds like a really challenging job right now. It's a lot of fun. Is it? It is. It is. Well, that's excellent. (laughs) It can be very difficult, especially with the hostile climate in Pennsylvania. Yeah. (laughs) But I think the fun in it is figuring out ways to get folks involved, to make it a priority for people. I think more people are starting to perk up to um, the idea of protecting abortion providers, protecting abortion access. And so it's really nice, especially most recently folks have 
been coming into the clinic or looking online to find out ways that they can be a part of what we're doing or find out ways to volunteer with us because yeah they want to do something they feel like doing nothing is it's not okay right now it's not independent clinics are closing at unprecedented rates right now across the whole country across the entire country and so the number of clinics has reduced about 28 percent since 2012 and so that comes from a whole host of issues that we hopefully get to dive into today. Uh, yeah, we want to hear the issues. Sure. <laughs> a lot of what I wanted to talk about today was barriers to access for folks, and those come in all different kinds of ways. So some of them are financial, some of them are state-imposed, and the biggest one of all is stigma. For folks who don't know, Pennsylvania has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the United States. And hold on, because we've all heard about Alabama (laughs) and other states where they've become so extremely restrictive that basically there are no legal abortions anymore. So we're up there with those. So we're up there because we were the model state. We were the first, one of the first states to implement. The model of what? (laughs) The model state for restricting access to abortion care. The model for restrictions. Mm-hmm. Wow. I was happy so that, proud. that we're like um, cheese steaks and uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it be pretzels? nice just to be cheese steaks see, and water ice and We're pretzels? also good at restrictions. Yeah. Great. Um, but we are home of the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act, which is a model of restrictions that other states have taken on um, over the years. And so a few of what the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act regulates is that a person must receive state-mandated counseling that includes information designed to discourage women from having an abortion. Do you do that at the centers? So we have to. Legally, okay. we are we are to fall in line with that. And we have to have a way to prove that a patient has completed that state-mandated information session. They get information sessions on... So we have a every- few ways to do that. So for, for each new pregnancy a person wants to terminate, they have to hear this state-mandated information from a from a medical doctor. And so we've figured out ways to make it as most accessible for our patients as possible. So we have a few ways that folks can do that. We figured out a way to get one of our doctors in front of a camera, which is very hard with abortion providers. Oh, you Uh, just show the film. And we show a video. Unfortunately, that means that a patient may have to make multiple trips to the clinic in order to access abortion care. So they have to come in for the video, then yeah. they have to come in for their appointment, then they have to come in for a follow-up appointment. That seems so unfair. It is. What we've also tried to do is that we now have it uh, accessible by phone conference um, about two to three times a day for about five to six days a week. And so it's a morning, afternoon, evening, and whatever doctor's on duty for that time, they take that time slot and they offer that information session over the phone to patients. So you find ways. Yeah, you to have deal. to. We're really beholden to our patients and to making the experience as seamless and streamlined as possible. And non-traumatic. Right. For some folks, this is already a, a very difficult and sometimes very deeply personal decision. And to have the state impose these regulations just says that they don't trust you to make your own decisions. And it says that they know what's best for you and your family. Um, and that's simply not true. Women have the power and the knowledge to make these decisions for themselves, and that decision should be left up to them. With that state-mandated information session comes a 24-hour delay before you can have your abortion. And so a patient must wait after hearing that information 
24 hours before coming in to receive their abortion. So that means in the state of Pennsylvania, we can't do same-day appointments. But right across the bridge in New Jersey, these restrictions are not in you place. Can. Oh. Yep, you could you could walk in tomorrow and say you want to have an abortion, and if there's room on the schedule, they could put you on there. So your New Jersey clinic actually has different rules from the Pennsylvania clinic. Yes. Ah. So New Jersey is and less restrictive. Yeah. A haven state for folks trying to access abortion care. A lot of the restrictions about uh, minors accessing abortion care in the state of Pennsylvania, you have to be 18 years or older, or if you're under 18, you have to have parental consent, which means a parent has to be on that information session with you. They have to come in and sign for you to have your abortion and also receive the informed consent. In the state of New Jersey, minors can access abortion care on their own. Wow, that is a vast difference. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, you'd want to bus minors over to New Jersey. <laughs> we used to go to New Jersey because they had an 18-year-old uh, drinking age. When was this? It was... <laughs> uh, it, it, it was I I'm from New York, and we had that Did too. you go to Roger Wilkins? <laughs> right across the bridge? I'm just saying. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, so you have to get to New Jersey, but you also have to be able to get to New Jersey. Exactly. I mean, and, yeah. and have money. Yeah. And even here, you have to be able to come in at least two times, if not three, to get it done. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that's Pennsylvania. Another one what of the... What else do we do to torture I women? <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It sounds so terrible. <laughs> well, you don't do it. You try to help. I try. Another one of the barriers to accessing care is the financial barrier. And for folks who have private insurance that cover abortions, that's amazing. But... In is, the state there, of, is there private insurance that still covers abortion mm -hmm. now? Yep. And if it's through your um, employer, your employer opts in or opts out. That's completely up to them and through their own company and personal morals. Does, does the insurance through the ACA cover abortion? So the insurance for the ACA only covers abortion, and this is for all government insurances, only covers abortion in the cases of rape, incest, or threat to life of the person carrying the pregnancy. And so any government program, whether it's your Medicaid, Medicare, or if you're a government employee, so U.S. postal people, military folks, any... Anyone on the ACA, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Or who don't have coverage they do if not they have just coverage. want to get an abortion. Exactly. They haven't been raped or something. Right. If it hasn't, but yeah. I just want to interrupt for a second. If anybody has any question or want to say anything at any time... Let us know. We'll bring the mic. We could also open it up at the end for yeah. a full we'll conversation. Yeah, we'll bring it over to Rhoda, though. <laughs> yeah. So as you were um, speaking earlier about the counseling that they have to receive, what kind of what kind of information is given to them? Sure. So a lot of the information that the state has put together is medically inaccurate. So you would think that folks would, you know, fact check. Um, and we do. We just don't have any um, way of changing what our, what their script says. A lot of the information states some inaccurate percentages or numbers on risks of abortion as opposed to the risks of carrying to term for a pregnancy has to list your other options adoption carrying to term and it also which is my personal favorite to give a chuckle is that the man involved in the pregnancy is required to support you financially even if he has offered to pay for the abortion what <laughs> wait well, I, have to, I have to understand that better <laughs> right so the man involved in the pregnancy is obligated to help with the pregnancy costs. And once you uh, carry the term and you have this pregnancy, they're, they're obligated to help you support this pregnancy, even if 
they have offered to pay for the co- so cost what, of an abortion. What happens when they don't? Right. What happens <laughs> when they don't? What is the punishment that they have? They haven't had to carry a baby for mm-hmm. nine months. What's their punishment for not helping? I mean, we could talk to many of the men who are evading yeah, who don't their help. responsibilities now. <laughs> so That's uh, a ridiculous requirement. What a joke. Right. Yeah, how do you make that happen? I don't understand. how. Yeah, there's a whole process for trying to get that's Deb. Um, financial support, and it runs through family court, and there's like a whole deal. But that's even if the woman's able or willing to identify who it is. And a lot of times, you know, in a date rape situation or in other kinds of situations, women don't want to do that. So then what happens? Yeah, they might have had a one-night stand. They get pregnant. They don't even know the guy. How's he supposed to... <laughs> Be involved. I wish I wish I had the answers. We should we should bombard Harrisburg and find out. We're extremely fortunate in Pennsylvania to have um, Governor Wolf, who has been a champion for abortion access in the state of Pennsylvania, and we're also really grateful not to have a veto majority in our um, legislation right now. So we're very happy with where we are. Um, It doesn't stop bad legislation from being introduced. We've seen 20-week bans on abortion being introduced. We've seen six-week bans on, inter- on, on abortion every session. Really, they should loosen up the overly tight regulations they already have. It's been over 20 years since we've seen proactive legislation on abortion access in Pennsylvania. In talking about the fact that Medicaid and Medicare systems don't uh, cover abortion in their um, insurance, Where that comes from or where that stems from is the Hyde Amendment. And so I'm sure people have been hearing that getting tossed around, especially as the 2020 presidential election or the race is coming into full swing now. Definitely heard about it. Yeah. So that was passed in 1976, which was just three years after the Roe v. Wade decision in the case. It was to counteract Roe v. Wade. Right. And so what this says is that no federal dollars can be used toward the funding of abortion. As healthcare providers, as abortion providers, we're accustomed. Aren't we supposed to have separation of church and state? I know you don't have the answer. (laughs) It's illogical to me. She likes to (laughs) ask unanswerable questions. (laughs) So we're used to providing supportive services to the pregnant people in our community, and we see firsthand the barriers that people have to accessing care. And what this does is just push forward the narrative of stigma attached to abortion, telling someone that because they qualify for Medicaid or Medicare because they're poor, um, they don't deserve to have access to their full range of reproductive health care options. And so you've made someone's deeply personal decision to potentially have an abortion politicized now. And it's not fair to our patients to have to come out of pocket for something that should be covered by their insurance. I think Viagra is covered by insurance, right? It is. Yeah. I don't know if it's covered by Medicaid, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Some of the other really ridiculous restrictions that are put on abortion providers in Pennsylvania are the trap laws. So in 2011, trap laws were enacted in Pennsylvania. So what trap laws are? Targeted regulation of abortion providers. And so what that means is that abortion providers are required to meet some very ridiculous and medically unnecessary standards within our clinics. And that targets us as opposed to other clinicians who have other medical practices. We're some of the most highly regulated providers across the country. 
And so what the tribe laws dictate are things like the size of our janitorial closet. The Wait, size the size of your janitorial closet? Yeah, like where Why? we keep the brooms. I know. <laughs> We're gonna do the abortion in the in the janitor closet. <laughs> Gotta move the brooms out first. Crazy. The size of our closets, the size of our hallways, the materials that our ceilings are made out of. Why? And, and so they've gotten legislators have gotten this really ridiculous idea that vaginas are sterile places. And that <laughs> just air is going to make it unsterile. And I'm like, first of all, vaginas are far from sterile. There's a lot of things going <laughs> well, on in there. We've got bacteria yeah. going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And all of it's healthy. So the legislators are absolutely ignorant. They're uneducated about oh. basic female health. So where they do heart, open heart surgery, do they have special ceilings? Because to me, that is um, a place that needs to be really clean. Yeah. <laughs> That would make sense to me. But they don't, do they? Once again, asking questions that I don't know the <laughs> answer to. I don't think they have special janitorial <laughs> closet regulations where they do open heart surgery. That I doubt highly. Yeah. but They were confused. They thought it was genitorial. The genital closet? <laughs> it's the genital closet. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that makes sense. Okay, finally. That's actually what I thought you were going to say, something about genitalia. Yeah, like, wait, right. did I hear that wrong? Not genitorial? where we keep our brooms and our mops. It's the genital closet. <laughs> the genital closet. <laughs> Just put the vaginas in the genital closet. <laughs> That's where they keep the vaginas. <laughs> but you're exactly right in that this is an indirect way to burden abortion providers to the point that they close. Yeah. These regulations, they're 100% on the abortion provider and the clinic to make. So these adjustments, these unnecessary upgrades, there's no reason for them, but we have to come out of our pocket to pay for them. And if you think about how much an abortion costs. The cost of an abortion has not changed, I want to say, in a few decades. What does it cost? First trimester abortion, early term abortion, anywhere from $300 to $500. That price hasn't changed in 10 to 20 years. That's amazing, and that's a good thing in a way, but it means the cost for all these upgrades goes to the clinic and the right. direct do- doctors and whoever runs exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And so we have to figure out ways to make that happen. Um, at our office in Philadelphia, we had to install a brand new HVAC system in a building that we rent space in. So we can't take it with us. And it cost us all of our rainy day incidental money. We and had this is to keep the vagina sterile. Yeah, to keep okay. the vagina sterile. You gotta have yeah. an HVAC system. <laughs> <laughs> and for folks who rent, this is... A huge burden if we ever decide to move. No. Whatever. And we yeah. had an HVAC system. They have to give you heat. We just had to have an upgraded yeah. state-of-the-art yeah. HVAC system that met the requirements uh, of the trap yeah. laws. It's so disturbing because when people do abortions themselves, mm-hmm. they don't have any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's so much more dangerous. Abortions have been happening for as long as people have been able to get pregnant. That's forever. Forever. And so <laughs> yeah. for people to have had managed their fertility for this long, provide their own abortion for this long, and now because of some legislators that got together and thought it was their moral obligation or they feel like they know best. And who don't understand female physiology. Yeah. these are They are not consulting medical physicians. They're not consulting folks who work in the medical field. They're making these decisions in the capital. Just to talk a little more about the trap laws, there are clinics. Every clinic isn't able to make those 
adjustments or make those modifications. Um, our Delaware County office holds the legacy of um, the Reproductive Health Counseling Center, and they were around since Roe, 1973, I believe. And when the trap laws went into effect, they couldn't become um, an ambulatory surgical facility, which would have been the requirement to perform abortions in their office, their surgical abortions in their and office. it wasn't set up so that it could be no. turned in, it could meet all the requirements. It could have. They would have had to pay for it. A and lot they, of money. And they couldn't afford it. And so in 2014, 2013, we absorbed that clinic. Unfortunately, we didn't have the money to put into that either. But what we did do was turn that clinic into a clinic that only provides the medication abortion. And so you don't have to be an ambulatory surgical facility to provide medication abortion. So when can people get the medication abortion versus the actual surgical abortion? Sure. So medication abortion is only um, available up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, so gestational age. Okay, and after that, it has to be surgical. Okay. Yes. You guys are the only ones that are performing later-term abortions, and I know this because I've had clients utilize you guys when Planned Parenthood. Planned mm -hmm. Parenthood's only up to 12 weeks, Ugh. correct? Uh, I want to say it's either 12 or 14. 14. Yeah, and then beyond that, because I've had clients who've, for example, somebody who the partner was in jail and mm -hmm. they couldn't reach the partner to have the discussion about yeah. that and kind of making that decision. So and it got pushed it 16 weeks yeah. by the time the decision actually got made. And you guys are the only provider in the area, I believe. That right? is true. Is that true? Um, unless we're talking about hospital based oh. abortions. And the which... hospital aren't doing it. Mm -hmm. They've basically, especially some of the hospitals with more of a religious bent, oh, even yeah. if they aren't Religious totally hospitals. Affiliated, yeah, religiously. Yeah. So a bulk of the abortions performed after, I would say, first trimester, early term abortion, the later term abortions are, for the most part, performed by independent abortion providers. We're one of the few independent abortion providers in Philadelphia, and I believe we are the only ones providing abortion care in later term. And we've recently expanded our later term abortions to meet the state limit in Pennsylvania. So the state limit in Pennsylvania is up to 24 weeks. And while the price hasn't gone up, that's still a lot of money. Yeah. 300 to $500? And that's for early term pregnancy. So the price increases. The more increased. complicated it gets, right. the higher exactly. the price. Now we've been in Philadelphia and, and to work in the Women's Centers Network, we've been very fortunate to have local abortion funds like Women's Medical Fund to help us help our patients bridge the gap because folks don't have Three hundred to five hundred dollars just sitting around. Right. So when someone comes in and they don't have the money, you get some funding that helps them. Do you have to sometimes turn people away? So the women's centers makes it our mission not to turn folks away due to financial barriers. So we have. That would be so hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. And <sighs> especially, like I said before, with us being independent abortion providers and some of the only ones in this area, where else would they go? And so at that point, you're almost telling someone they have to carry to term in a pregnancy that they may not want to. Or do something totally unsafe. Right. Risk their lives doing something totally unsafe. Yeah. yeah. So we also have some national funds that are extremely helpful, like the National Abortion Federation, and they give funding based on financial need. So we can all give money to the National Abortion Foundation. Yes, but you could also give money to your independent <laughs> clinics. Okay. Okay, so how would we do that? Sure. So if you visit <laughs> thewomencenters.com, you can go to your Take Action tab, 
to hit take action, you can donate. And it gives a list of places you can donate to, including our um, oh, nice. abortion access fund. Okay. So one of them is Women's Medical Fund, which is an amazing place to donate. They talk directly to patients and help them get the finances they need in order to have their abortion care. NAF is also an amazing organization for you to talk to, which is the National Abortion Federation, if you're interested in donating. I think it is worth to note that we are not a nonprofit, so you, if you donate to us, you will not get a tax write-off. But if you donate to Women's Medical Fund or NAF, you will. And they send money to you as part yes. of their mission. If you're a Pennsylvania person and you want to donate, can you designate with the larger organizations for it to go directly to you? I would say donate to a local fund like Women's Medical Fund because that way you know your money is going to stay in the state and in the region. NAF, it's a giant pot, and they just disperse it to patients they disperse it to clinics based on a patient, not dispersed to clinics. Well, that's terrific. Does anyone have any questions or comments? <laughs> I'm going to hand it to Deb. Um, are you guys dealing with protesters at your place as well? And do you have escorts and those kinds of things? I have friends who do a lot of the Planned Parenthood work. Yeah, so them. our Philadelphia office sees protesters six days a week. Every day we're open. They're there before we get there. But we also have a really amazing network of volunteers that do escort services. They are there to greet our patients and to direct them into the clinic to be a friendly face in a sea of sometimes disturbing pictures, triggering comments. And recently they have started passing out goodie bags. What? What's right. a goodie bag? Right. So they have like mints and candies and all of their information. But the problem is, is that our pa a lot of our patients are undergoing anesthesia. We tell them not to eat, drink, smoke, or chew after midnight. And it. they oh. give them mints and candy because they know that people are hungry. And sometimes your mouth is dry. You can't even have water. And then when they get to the front desk, they're sucking on a mint. And so it's just another tactic to lay care for people. That's evil. It is. Really? Yeah, diabolical. Right. Now, I was wondering in... Um Meeting women and speaking with them and go, as they go through their arduous process that they that go through, what are the things that come up for them that are uh, difficult in their decision-making process? Sure. I think one of the biggest things is the stigma alone. And so feeling like they can't talk to their family or friends about having an abortion or even deciding whether to have an abortion. Feeling alone sometimes. We also talk to a lot of patients that are extremely grateful and they're in a place where they're feeling gratitude for the fact that they live in a state that they can still access abortion, even though it may be difficult. But it's a whole range of emotions and feelings, and sometimes they're conflicting. People know what's best for them and whatever their decision is, and making a decision can still be really difficult. And I think when you make a decision either way, there's some grief involved. Yeah. You know, whether you're going to keep this pregnancy or you're going to give it up, there's some kind of loss, like with lots of decisions in life. But it's really hard to process it when you're in this environment where it feels like you're doing something wrong. Wrong, yeah. And that's what our state has made people feel like, that the decision they make is wrong. And that's not fair. That's a lot to put on a person who's doing the best they can with the life they have. You mentioned how with government insurance it's possible to get it covered in cases of rape or incest. Can you talk about what burden is on women to even demonstrate that that's the case with their pregnancy? Sure. You do have to disclose that to either our clinic staff over the phone when you make your appointment or when you come in for your appointment. To file to use your insurance under the cases of rape or incest, that requires more visits to the clinic. And so the first visit we have to 
do your information session, but we also are required to do ultrasound to determine your gestational age. And we have to submit that claim to the insurance before you come in for your appointment for your abortion. So that's already a two to three step process could make it a fourth step for you. We do have to have you fill out a form. You do not have to um, report it to the police if you do not want to. Um, that's something that our staff will go over with you if you decide to report to the police. We can help you through that, um, but you don't have to. But we do have to mark down whether or not you did report to the police. Past that, we submit that claim back to the insurance company. Once they've accepted it, we can have you in for your appointment. And how many weeks does that generally take to go through? That I'm not 100% sure on. The minor issue that you mentioned, particularly in terms of incest, having mm -hmm. had clients that that's been the case with. So what happens with those cases? So for minors in general, if they plan to access abortion care without a parent, they have to go through the judicial bypass process, which is an extremely cumbersome and awkward process for even in an adult to do. So to have someone who's a young person with less resources potentially. Who's traumatized because they're an incest victim. If this, yes, if we're talking, if this is the case of incest, then they already have to carry that. And this is a process where they're going to have to stand before a judge, explain why they are mature enough to make the decision to have an abortion. This is where I would start worrying about suicide. That's a risk, a big risk. Yeah, I'm sure. Folks, young people... In order to access this, they have to jump through hoops that are ridiculous. The court system is only open 9 to 4, Monday through Friday. During that time, most young people are in school. And so to try to navigate this system while also keeping this away from your guardian, your parent, for whatever reason you're deciding not to tell them. Which many, many incest victims don't tell. Right. And sometimes rape, too, because they, don't, they just don't want to. They have the right not to. Yeah. But it's, it sounds like it's such a burden on people that I could see someone who's already, you know, so traumatized not wanting to get engaged with this system. Yeah, most definitely. We have some amazing staff members that if we get calls like that from patients, um, they're able to provide them with resources, talk them through the process. Our office has tried to streamline the process as much as we can. We work with lawyers that do this caseload like pro bono. But the problem is patients still have to get to these people. They can file for their judicial bypass process either in the, st in the county that they plan to have their abortion or in the county that they live. But the fear about doing it in the county that you live in is that you're highly likely to run into someone that you know, that your parents know, or that this memo gets on someone's desk. I feel like we should just bust them to New Jersey. <laughs> that would be phenomenal. Um, legally, we are not allowed to. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But what we can do is explain to patients all of their options and our closest clinics and what the laws are or lack thereof in those places. Because if not, we could get into some very sticky kidnapping things. Yeah, we don't want that to happen. That sounds horrible. Yeah. How's well, Taylor, that? this has been so informative. Really, thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you, you so for much, having Taylor. me. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter. Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Till next time. Take care.